there's a luxury in not thinking hope matters because when you're around certain people and when you've seen the things that my grandparents have seen, you know, coming from Forest, Mississippi and, you know, Brownsville, Tennessee, hope means something. There were times when you didn't think your people would ever get out of the rut that they were in. And to see that someone who looks like you made it, it matters. I'm Richard Clark. I am an editor at Christianity Today and the host of this show you're listening to, The Calling. Today, my interview is with Justin Gibbony. He is a political strategist and the founder of or co-founder of the Ann Campaign with, along with uh, Show Baraka and Angel Maldonado. Justin Gibbony vividly remembers the moment he realized he needed to distinguish himself from the mainstream Democratic Party. He was a delegate representing the 5th Congressional District in Georgia. He was taking part in a voice vote to determine whether or not to remove the phrase God-given from the phrase God-given rights in the Democratic Party platform. He said that when they voted on it by voice, it was so clear that the people who wanted that phrase out of the platform were a lot more excited and energized than the people who wanted it in. So for him... It was pretty clear he needed to distinguish himself from that party. And creating the end campaign was a kind of a way of formalizing that realization. Um, to point out that the truth ultimately lies somewhere in between party lines. That's really an attempt to fundamentally change the way Christians have historically interacted with politics, or at least how it seems like they have. Encouraging them uh, at this point to let their biblical values rather than party politics lead their involvement in the national conversation. These are obviously worthy goals. They're ambitious, but given he understands those are going to take time. That's why he's settling in. He's demonstrating patience in his rhetorical strategy um, on social media and in public, and he's investing his time and vision in institutions like the Ann campaign. Ultimately, given he is leaning into hope, he's a happy warrior for politics done right. On this episode, I talked to Justin Gibney about why he felt called into politics, when to speak up on social media, and the encouragement he receives that keeps him going. He's also a co, by the way, just a housekeeping note, he is a, he's a co-host of a podcast called the Church Politics Podcast with Matthew Ware. Matthew Ware was another uh, interview I did previously. If you're interested in politics, if you're interested in particular in Christian involvement in democratic politics. Matthew Ware is someone I interviewed back in December of 2017. I would very much recommend you check it out. One house, other housekeeping note, we have one episode left of The Calling. I think you'll like it. It's a good one. But yeah, I'll just leave it there. One episode left of The Calling, and then we are um, moving on to bigger and better things. Hang in there. CT is doing fun stuff in the podcast space. A lot to come this year. Speaking of CT, Christianity Today magazine is really what this is all about. That's what supports our podcast. That's what uh, keeps it going. You guys subscribe to CT magazine, and we get to keep doing the podcasts that we do. Christianity Today magazine, it offers uh, 10 award-winning print issues, talent and PDF editions of each issue, full web access to ChristianityDay.com, 
online archive online archives dating back to 1956 we set up a special page for you that's orderct.com slash the calling go get it here's my interview with justin Giboney. what do you do in your spare time i read a lot uh, I have two sons, uh-huh. Cooper and Chase. Cooper, How old? Uh, Cooper is three. Chase is one, about okay. to be two wow. in a month, month and a half. So, I, if I'm not uh, working on and campaign stuff, then I'm I'm playing with them and being with my wife. Summer. I'm just gonna like talk to you about being a dad of very young children because mm-hmm. I'm experiencing that right now, and it's the funnest thing I think I've ever done. It's amazing. It's Sometimes like the most consistently the- fun thing. It's amazing. Just some times when you just look at them and like, this is amazing. I still can't mm-hmm. really, I'm not sure if I can completely process it mm-hmm. all the way yet, uh, but they are amazing. Um, we start the podcast out with the same question every time. Okay. Um, how would you define your calling? I would define my calling as uh, trying to bring an understanding of the intersection of our faith and politics. Okay. Mm, a better understanding of how those intersect because I think there's some there's a loss for many Christians on that right now. What's the misunderstanding that you're trying to address? Well, there was a there was an idea uh, for some reason that when you're involved in the political sphere that you kind of leave your values behind, mm-hmm. right? Um, somehow that, whether it be the First Amendment or whatever, meant that you can't bring your values into uh, the policies that you support. Yeah. And I think it's um, on both sides. I think that happens on both sides. And one of the main things that I iterated say, no, Laws are created from values. There's no such thing as a law that wasn't created from some value. And so you do have to put your values into the policy you support. You have to do it in a way that respects pluralism Mm -hmm. and respects that other people have different ideas. But your values are always to guide you in any sphere, especially the political sphere. What what values like guide you that you're seeing being left behind? Well, I, I would say number one is the understanding of being, you know, being compassionate. Right. So you're not just compassionate with the people that you see at church. You're compassionate with your neighbors, people who you may not see at all, but you know that the policies and the way that you vote and who you support uh, affects them and has an impact on what they're doing. So I would say that's the first part of it. Uh, And coming from uh, a certain coming from Atlanta and parts of urban America, it's also the uh, Christian family and and sexual ethics. Uh, I talked about that in my uh, Christianity Today article. For some reason, a lot of people in urban America feel like you can't talk about those or you have to leave those behind when you're when you're in politics. And I, I don't think that's true. There's a way to go about it. Yeah. Uh, that's um, with grace and, you know, humility and charity. Mm-hmm. But you still have to make those statements because it's really about human flourishing. I want to explore like how you came to realize these things in a mm-hmm. minute. But w- when did you sort of realize that your calling had to do with the connection between faith and politics? So I've been in politics for about. A decade. And I think when it really when it really became clear to me is when I was a delegate at the Democratic National Convention Mm -hmm. in 2012. It was in Charlotte, North Carolina, representing uh, the fifth the fifth congressional district in Georgia, which is John Lewis's district. There was a vote. So when you first get there, what happens is you meet in your small your state your state delegations Mm -hmm. and then you go to what everybody sees, which is a larger delegations. And so when we first got there, we heard that there would be a vote on whether or not to leave God given in the platform or take God given out of the platform. Mm. Now, we know God given is just really a nod to natural law, yeah. which is hard to deny that natural law was a part of the creation of this country. It's the words that go before the word rights, right? Like That's God right. God given rights. God given. Okay. Exactly. God given rights. And, and some of the more leftward groups at the, you know, at the uh, the convention wanted to take that out. Yeah. 
And I remember, so we voted on it by voice vote. Mm-hmm. And it was so clear that the people who wanted it out were a lot more excited, were a lot, a lot, a lot more energized than the people who wanted it in. Yeah. And that struck me, um, not because they didn't have a right to push for what they wanted, it's the democratic process, but it made me realize that once I left the convention, that I had to do something that distinguished me from a secular Democrat, right? I started to believe that if if somebody hears a conversation between a bunch of Democrats, they should be able to point out who the Christian Democrats are. And I understood from my interactions, it wasn't just everybody else, but from my interactions, that I wasn't distinguishing myself. Yeah, this is interesting because you, you learned 10 years ago, this is 10 years ago, that if you're involved in politics, you need to distinguish yourself from sort of the the primary message maybe of whatever party you were aligning yourself with. this was yeah so this was in 2012 yeah. when it really hit me to say justin you're not doing because every from what i was thinking about was everybody on the outside that's not in at this convention mm-hmm. that's not a delegate yeah they probably they're gonna think that this is how democrats feel now what ended up happening was the powers that be knew that it would be an issue and probably be red meat for conservatives and Republicans. So they they acted like th- that they acted like the people who wanted it in won, but they really didn't. It wasn't even close. But it was this really awkward moment where they were like, "Uh, so we're gonna keep it in." But everybody was like, "What?" Huh. Like it clearly yeah. should have come out. But to me, it was a signal to say, "Justin, you have to distinguish yourself," because people on the outside, you know, maybe even kids who are looking up to the folks that are there, they think that this is how people feel in the party. And it's, that's not true. We're not all the same. Well, it just wasn't true. I was having a conversation the other day. So weirdly, I was, this is going to sound weird, but I was listening to a podcast with Jerry Springer. Mm-hmm. And um, the and he was talking about how he has this um, skill that transfers across both of his careers that he's had, which is one as a politician and one as a talk show host. And he says he has a skill of helping people be, feel like they've been heard mm-hmm. and that is something like immediately i went we don't have that anymore like that is something it feels to me and correct me if i'm wrong like it feels like the skill of being of helping not just hearing people and not just articulating other people's voices but helping people across the board understand or feel like you've heard them that's right is like missing from the political equation right now yeah, building those relationships and reflecting what they're telling you, not just not just being there and being mm-hmm. present and then going off and doing what you want to do, right. but reflecting what they told you and being willing to sacrifice for what they said uh, and have that conversation. Now, sometimes re- I think representatives do have to lead, right? <laughs> you mm-hmm. have to say, okay, I know this is the way that we need to go, but in general, you should be reflecting what uh, your constituents want that doesn't always happen and partially is because of you know the interest groups and and the way that they've come into the game when did you come to faith so i grew up in the church mm-hmm. um you know my mother's a pk uh, her, uh-huh. her, my grandfather's a bishop okay uh, but when i went to college i fell away from the word a little bit okay um and so i i went to vanderbilt university on you know, football scholarship and i was just kind of enjoying the the college life right I was being, you know, it seemed like all my religious studies courses were trying to make me more secular. <laughs> and, huh. I, and in a way, I kind of bought into that sure. uh, because it made sense. Yep. I, I could be religious, but then I can do what I wanted to do. Yeah. So it, That's it, nice. it, it, all, right, it, yeah. it all worked together. I could have my cake and eat it, too. Yeah. And so I, I would say um, probably, you know, it happened probably about six years ago when I came to the Lord, turned away, rock, walked down that Romans road and, um came to Christ in, in a real way in my in, as an adult. And and at what point did you decide to go into politics itself? 
So I'd say just over maybe 10 years ago, I had a group of friends and we would always come together and talk about maybe it was closer. Maybe it's closer to eight or nine years ago. We would always talk about politics, but we do it in a very academic way. Like, so we'd read a biography or we watch and we just always come together and talk about it. And one day I said, why are we being so academic about it? You know, some of these guys I went to law school with or whatever. I said, we're we can get in the game. Why don't we just get in the game? Right. And so we started talking to politicians, you know, a year or so after we got going, the mayor's race in Atlanta was coming up. And so we said, look, this is a perfect opportunity to get involved in this. And so we went over the candidates, started looking at the resumes, who was who, who was doing what, trying to decide who we would support. And there was a state senator named Kasim Reed. And just looking at his resume, hearing him speak and what people had to say about him, he was actually very low in the polls at the time. But we were like, after being together for about a year or so, a year and a half, we came and we were like, this guy is is special. And so we ended up just going up to the state senator and saying, we want to work for your campaign, whatever we can do, we'd like to. Got to know him, built a rapport. We started off just going door to door, knocking on doors in Southwest Atlanta, um, getting people to know more about him. And then it went to, you know, some of us were doing debate prep and all that mm-hmm. stuff. And so when he actually ended up winning and being the mayor of Atlanta, that's when we really um, started running campaigns and yeah. doing special projects for him. That's cool. Mm-hmm. So you started doing it full time at that point. So I left. I left the firm that I was at and went and started working at the Atlanta um, legal department. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what I would do is I was working in the legal department, but I would take um, leaves of absence mm-hmm. and then go run a campaign or something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So for um, I th- I feel like a lot of people the way they think of political strategists, the way they think of like running campaigns, there are some definite. I think like any job, but particularly here, there's some definite like quandaries for the Christian. Um, Did you have to face any of those? Did you have to think through questions of like opposition research and um, what you will and what you are and aren't willing to do those kind of things? Oh, absolutely. And and I'll tell you when I first started, um, I did a lot of the things I wasn't supposed to do. Okay. You know, I I had the understanding that people hire you because they know that you'll do what it takes to win. Right. They don't necessarily want to know what it is, but they want to know that you're willing to do what it takes to win. So that was your philosophy of that was that was yeah, that was my philosophy. Do what it took to win. Um didn't really care as much about how you you know, if you tore people down, then that's just what you had to do. That was part of the game. Right. And in my head it was justified because it was about winning. Yeah. Got to a point where I said that just that just can't be the way it is. Mm. I think the other thing that changed me was people started asking me to run and to think about running in different races whether it be city council yeah. or, and understanding where urban politics was at and how the secular left really controlled that and there were certain concessions that you were going to make as a christian or you weren't going to run or you were just going to be you know kind of left out there as a man without a country yeah i said i can't I, you know i can't make those type of sacrifices and that's something else that led to me saying i need to kind of try to get with a group of people to blaze a path for urban Christians to do it and not have to be, you know, um, you know, a secular progressive or whatever, when they run that they can run as who they are. Right. And so I think that's part of what the end campaign and the group I created called crucifix and politics was about to say, I may not be able to do it, but hopefully I can get with a group of people to open up and give other people opportunities to be who they want to be. Cause if you think about it, when you think about prominent urban Democrats, you can't really think of one who's pro-life or, for classic values like the Christian family and sexual ethic. Yeah. You can't think of one. Yeah. Now, when I go to church and I go to a, a traditional black Baptist church, people still believe in, in those ethics, mm-hmm. the, the Christian sexual and family ethic. Yeah. 
but they're, none of their representatives do. Not what, one. Yeah. That says a lot. That would they get excited the if, the, if that if there was one? Like, would they get pumped about it? I think they absolutely absolutely would get yeah. pumped. But you have to think you have to think that it's a a, a a possibility. Yeah. And so for right now, I think people are just settling for the fact that that's just not what we represent. Other things are more important. And from an urban point of view, we've never been able to tell people what to do. Right. We've mostly been like, we want to have mm-hmm. the rights mm-hmm. that we should have, but we've never been in a position to say, oh, you shouldn't do this. Right. This shouldn't happen. Yeah. Here's why religious liberty is important. We just haven't had that type of power. We've been focused on other things. Yeah. So I don't think it's thought about the same way, but th- it's very important. You see that happening like in the presidential race in 2020? Mm. Are we not there yet? Yeah, it may take some time. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I, that's ambitious. Yeah, that'd be a, a bit ambitious. Have you ever doubted the. Uh, this calling that that you have have you ever doubted that you're supposed to to be doing politics you have moments when you when you question what's going on but i i've been thankful that god has given me a very clear he's been very clear in what i'm supposed to do i think i have a lot of clarity on saying this is what happens and when i talk to people about it mm-hmm. and when people hear about the and campaign for instance they get it and they say no we need that i've yeah. never articulated that way but that's what we need so yeah. i get encouragement from people all the time um that's one of the best things i think about the and campaign too because especially in urban america you can feel alone if you still care about classic values you can feel like you're the only one and when people encounter the and campaign they say oh I can be, you know, compassionate and maintain my convictions because there's this feeling out there that if you don't affirm everything, then you're not loving. Well, we know that's not really what love is. It's not just affirmation. There's tough love. Um, and, and, and to show people that, I think it, it gives them encouragement. And that's one of the main things we're trying to do as well. Does that come from within your community or just from the larger party political system itself? What do you, what do you mean? That, um, that feeling of like you're not a true democrat i think if no, you believe I, these certain if you believe in classical values i think party leadership and some of the special interests put that narrative out there i don't think yeah. it comes from my community and it sort of took root it took root right. right and i think academia you hear in academia and mm-hmm. pop culture it's taken root to some extent now more so it's taking root with the leadership class as we talked about before the grassroots really you know they're focused on other things but i don't think i don't i'm not sure they believe that i'm asking this because of everything you've said so far what did like Barack Obama's presidency, his his being elected, um, and then the way it sort of played out? What did what did it mean to you? So very good question, and, and it's funny because when I think on his second, the second time he was elected, me and my wife were in Florida. We're in, obviously living in Atlanta. We were in Florida knocking on doors. I mean, we were huge yeah. proponents of what he was doing. I think it was a a level of pride to say we can be in that position right. from the African-American community to say we can achieve those things. And so there was a lot of pride in what Barack Obama uh, did. I think a lot of his policies were good and helpful mm-hmm. and it, it gave people hope. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's what he talked about a lot, hope. And it really did give people hope. If you talk to my grandmother, <laughs> you know, uh, and uh, some of my great aunts and uncles, all of them have a p- picture of Barack Obama in their home because yeah. they didn't think it, it meant could, something real. Yeah, They didn't yeah. think it could ever happen. Yeah. And so that it, when it happened, it was something very real to them. This is, I think, one of the biggest disconnects in mm-hmm. terms of how uh, how um, white people see this. It's mm-hmm. like th- there's a there's a there, there's a readiness to mock this idea of hope attached to Barack Obama's presidency, as if as if he's just a candidate promising yeah. a a set of policies that will bring hope to people. And I think I think what you're talking about is more than that. Like there's a there's a 
a deeper hope that came yeah, from Yeah, I, I think that's a, there's a luxury in not thinking hope matters. Right. Because when you're around certain people and when you've seen the things that my grandparents have seen, uh-huh. you know, coming from Forest, Mississippi and, you know, Brownsville, Tennessee, Tennessee mm-hmm. hope means something. There were times when you didn't think your people would ever get out of the rut that they were in. Mm-hmm. And to see that someone who looks like you made it, it matters. Yeah. Um, and so I'm not a big proponent of identity politics, but I know how special that was to people who were who had been taught through their whole lives in a very systemic way yeah. that they would probably never achieve anything like that. Right. When it comes to uh, to working in politics, what involvement does the local church have in that? Well, the local church, uh, especially in urban areas, it, it can be for one. I think it can work to make people aware of some of the issues. Mm-hmm. We know how important it is to to help our neighbor, but you can't help your neighbor if you're not aware of what what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I, so I think there is an ability to make people aware of the plight of the neighbors and what's going on in, in society. Mm-hmm. There's a line that should be drawn though, right? Okay. Um, I, I don't think that, you know, from the pulpit, we should be endorsing people, even though now, I guess, you know, with the Johnson Amendment, there may be an opportunity to do that. I don't think that's where it should be. And and so for the Ann campaign, we are almost kind of a buffer. The -hmm. church is very important, but we can work with churches to say, you probably don't want to cross this line. But if you work with us, we can inform people. We can let them know what it looks like to apply um, the gospel to this civic and cultural engagement. Mm -hmm. And so the church is always going to have a huge role in all of those things. I think you do have to watch out with what you let into the pulpit mm-hmm. uh, and what kind of issues you address and how you address them there. You have to be very careful with that. Mm-hmm. But the church in in it being the people, right, rather than a building, has to be involved, have to be engaged because it's a matter of flourishing. Yeah. Um, you know, I, people have said, well, maybe we should stay out of politics a little bit and not really worry about it. That's easy for you to say, but for people who are not in the quote unquote protected class. Yeah decisions made in politics matter right big time you yeah. know some people have a buffer other people don't and so it's a it, they don't have the luxury not to be involved in some way and yeah. I, so i think the church should recognize that and understand why you know politics and that sort of engagement is important for you personally what role has the local church played a huge role um in, in keeping keeping me grounded um, an understanding of, you know, family and community. Mm-hmm. Um, I just got in a really bad accident, for instance, and my church, Greater Piney Grove Baptist Church in Atlanta, was just so awesome in being that church family and making sure me and my wife and my kids were okay. Um, and so the church has just been uh, just wonderful. Um, fellowship, um, accountability mm-hmm. when necessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those are the things, I mean, that's my, that's my passion. That's kind of what drives me. And so when I have those moments of saying, am I going in the right direction, doing what, what's right every Sunday when I go to church, every Tuesday, you know, I may be teaching a, a, a Bible study or something that it always energizes me yeah. uh, to be back around, you know, my church, my church members. Is there someone who inspires you most? Yeah. Um, I would say, uh, my grandfather, Bishop Thomas Cooper, okay. um, you know, he is in his 80s, almost in his 90s, uh, ran, you know, ran his church for 40 years. And every time I go back to it's a small town in Illinois, Decatur, Illinois. Wow. Yeah. Every time I go back to Decatur, Illinois, and just, you know, when I had the chance to talk to him and see what he had been through, mm-hmm. it's always motivation because like Daniel, he was a man in the community that lived what he said. Yeah. Um, and that that always meant so much to me because people knew they could depend on him. He was a giver. He would give you the shirt off his back. Uh, but he also held people accountable and you could see he was there to, to be a, a, a true servant. And I think that's what, you know, those things keep me grounded. If anybody is really 
an inspiration to me would have to be my grandfather. My grandfather was kind of that way too. Like to see that consistent faith being lived out in every place that I was seeing, like was was uh, a big deal for me. I wasn't I was didn't come to Christ until I was sixteen, but um, I think that showed the nature of what true faith looks like in a place where hypocrisy was pretty common. Right. If that makes sense. No, it makes it makes a, a lot of sense. I mean, again, to set that standard to give you an example of what this is supposed to look like mm-hmm. goes a, a long way, you know. And I was I would also say my father, you know, my father's a, a man who um, overcame alcoholism when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Uh, seen him overcome a lot, and just to see the coming to God and being able to overcome obstacles that are in your life, being able to o- overcome sicknesses, yeah, that's meant a lot to me as well. What's been your biggest struggle? I would say my biggest struggle has been. This is a good question. <laughs> I've had a lot of That's struggles. That's what people say yeah, this is a when it's question. a hard question. Yeah, I don't think it means it's necessarily making, a good question. You're making me reflect on this one. <laughs> I would say my biggest struggle um, in my lifetime was overcoming just maybe peer pressure and the pressure to be a certain kind of person because of what you did. So if, as a football player, mm. right, people expect you to be a certain way. People yeah. think expect you to react to things in a certain way. And I had to get over I had to get over what people expected of me and kind of become who who God wanted me to be. Um I had to get over my own desires, whether they be uh, sexual desires or whatever and say you have to be the man God God wants you to be for your sons, for your wife and all those things once they come. You yeah. need need to be right when that comes. Yeah. And, I, and so I think I think it's that. I think it's understanding how my character is supposed to be based on the character of God and what is what we are called to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that wasn't easy for me. Like I said, when I was in college, I was doing all type of things that I wouldn't necessarily want to repeat. Uh, I've actually been reading um, St. Augustine's Confessions. Mm. And it, it, going through those confessions reminded me of a lot of the things that I've been through. Yeah. And I think it's taught me to have compassion, too. Yeah. So I can't come to someone that's in sexual immorality uh, knowing what I've been through and, and really come down hard on them because I've been there. And there's a certain humility that comes with saying, no, nah, I've been there uh-huh. only by grace that I get out of it. Right. Let me try to help and let me try to understand what you're going through, even if it's a little different than mine. Do you feel like you're more susceptible to peer pressure than most? Like, is that a bigger struggle for you than I think there was people? a time when I was, and yeah. I don't even know if it was peer pressure. Maybe it's just more societal pressure of saying, this is how, this is how men react. These how, this is how man, a man treats a woman or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't say more so than most, but there was a time when I was too uh, malleable. Yeah. Um, and, and I needed to understand this is what God says. And so when I speak to young people today, I say, look, you have to have a code. What huh, is the yeah. code that you live by? Yeah. And God gives us a code, and mm-hmm. that's the code that you need to have. And the truth is, people respect you more when you stick by your code. I feel like any time, when you bring up the code, it just makes me think of the wire. So <laughs> Omar's code is like yeah. very specific and simple. And other than that, he does a lot of stuff. And I think maybe as Christians, we have a little more to our code than that. But mm-hmm. like, do you find yourself like needing to be a little more... Um, uh, open-handed with the rest of it is that something it does it allow you the I just, freedom to do I, I that? just feel like i need to be biblical yeah and so well, i think the, i enough. think that yeah i think the bible gives you space where there needs to be space yeah and in certain areas the bible doesn't give you space right to do what you want to do totally. and if you follow that i think you'll be right I, I don't i don't think i'm smart enough to decide 
all the places where I need space and don't. I think the Bible provides that for us. Um, it doesn't speak to every single situation, but when it comes to, again, sexual ethics and things like that, sanctity of life, it's pretty specific on, on how you need to react. When it comes to interacting with my sons and what I'll do with them, there's some space for me to, you know, to do some things differently. You may do something different with your son than I do, but there are other areas where there just isn't that, that kind of, um, of space to work. How is going into politics and the faith and politics angle, how has um, that work changed you? I think it's made me stronger in that in a lot of ways I had people with me, but it made me step out on my own. It made me say, I may lose all my friends who are Democrats. Huh. Folks may not want to talk to me anymore because I stand up for these issues, but I don't have a choice. I have to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to be honest, I was scared to do that for a long time. Right. I was scared to get on Twitter and, and say certain things because it's like, well, I want to run later. I want to do this. And that may come <laughs> back to haunt me. And one day I said, you know what? Give that up. Huh. Let that go and say what needs to be said. And so maybe you can open the opportunities up for someone else. How do you know what needs to be said? This is a real hard problem for Twitter, right? Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes yeah. That's I That's a limited, that example is limited, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 not just limited, it's like fraught. Like, mm-hmm. it's a real thing, like this, this question of like, am I being cowardly or am I being wise and not bringing such and such up? Sometimes nothing needs to be said. Yeah. And, and maybe a better example is not just Twitter, but the public square. Yeah. Like what, putting in putting a word in the witness into the public square is uh-huh. something I was afraid to do. Yeah. Uh, so that doesn't mean I need to respond every time something comes up on Twitter. But at the end of the day, there needs to be a word in the witness. And if people are affirming things that they shouldn't affirm, I may have to step up, whether it be on Twitter, whether it be at a speaking engagement in academia or somewhere else. Mm-hmm. I need to step up and say, no, this isn't right according to doctrine. And here's why. Yeah. Let's be compassionate and helping others get to this point right what's interesting about and campaign is like you've codified that idea mm-hmm. in a way like you in a way you step back and you say of all the things that are being said in this political sphere like what what is the thing that just isn't being said but desperately needs to be and when i when i saw and like i was like yes that's the thing it's not just one thing it's a series of things together and and in particular showing that they're compatible right like that's a really um i thought that was a really interesting way that you um play out that principle Mm -hmm. of like stepping back going what needs to be said and saying it in a way that is not just on twitter but is like um formal and um and like has implications and and changes things. Yeah. Possibly. And, and the other part of it, I think that's right. The other part of it is challenging both sides. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a very, it is very hard and very tempting not to take a side, not to say, and, and mm-hmm. we don't want to get, and we talked about, we don't want to get into false equivalency. You don't have mm-hmm. to say that, that two sides are equivalent, but when you're talking about um, the conservative, you know, the right side, and when you're talking about the more progressive or liberal left side, we really wanted to challenge both sides because it's so easy to say, you know what? White evangelicals have hurt me. Yeah. And because they have hurt me, I'm going to go against everything that they're for. Right. Um, and I'm just going to go very – and it's, it's, it's tough to do that. But we really try to challenge believers to say, you know what, even, though if, I, even if I was hurt, there are th- still things on the left that I can't go for, mm-hmm. just like there are things on the right that I can't go for. I can't if – I'm, if, if, if I'm in urban America, I can't go blind in my left eye just because I have issues what's going on with the right. Right, There's, yeah. I know people on both sides – that are in it for the wrong reason. 
I know people that are on both sides that are in it for the right reason. I might not always agree with them, but to create this idea where this is a good versus evil and everybody that's evil is on the left or the right, mm-hmm. it just it's not accurate. And I think it it's it's problematic for Christians generally. One of the things that's really hard about politics is it feels like there are a lot of things in this world you can do slightly wrongly mm-hmm. and it's fine. Like you're still contributing with politics. It kind of feels like if you pick a side in that way and you do it for the wrong reasons and you're sort of contributing to this spiral, what, what seems like a death spiral mm-hmm. in politics, uh, you're just making things worse. Like in some ways, like the, uh, do you, th- do you think there's a way for people who have a hard time with politics or have a hard time talking politics in a way that's valuable or helpful? And I think a lot of us relate to that Mm -hmm. in different issues. Like certainly for me, there are issues in which it's hard for me to talk in a helpful way. Um, What's the advice you give for like normal people who feel a little bit out of their depth there? Should they do something anyway? Should they get involved anyway? Or should they take a step back? Yeah, I think if you're in a situation where emotionally or for some other reason you can't be constructive, mm-hmm. it's okay to take a step back. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about Twitter, we see a lot of people that do not take a step back when they're, you know, maybe too emotional to be constructive. And that doesn't yeah. mean you can't be upset sometimes and that you can't let people know how you feel. But you have to consider stepping back. The other thing is seek understanding. Make sure you have relationships with the people you may be criticizing. Mm-hmm. Right? Make sure you truly understand what they're going through and err on the side of charity. Yeah. Err on the side of of thinking that they have the best intentions. One thing I always have to clear up when I talk about choosing sides is people think we're saying that this is a new party or something. You can be a Democrat mm-hmm. or a Republican. I'm not saying you can't choose a party, mm-hmm. but what I'm saying is you can't say okay, I'm a Democrat. I'm going to go against everything the Republicans do. I'm right. going to I'm going to approve everything that that the uh, the Democrats do. That's mm-hmm. that's kind of what we're going against that thought. Yeah. Because we think Christians have to transcend transcend partisanship. Yeah. Not that they can't be involved in partisan politics, but they have to transcend it at the end of the day. What is um what is your deepest fear? My deepest fear. Can I say that's a good question again? Just the delay. Go for it. <laughs> yeah. My deepest fear. I think one of my deepest fears is waking up at the end of my life or being at the end of my life and realizing that I got something wrong about the day, you know, that God was trying mm-hmm. to tell me something. I missed it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think between that and, you know, my sons, you know, I want my sons to to know what God's character is kind of like my grandfather did to me. I want to teach them that not being able to teach, not them not being able to see that. But at the end, I think the biggest one would be at the end of my life saying, Oh, this is what God was trying to tell me. And I missed it. What would that possibly be? If I knew, I wouldn't be worried about it. <laughs> no, I don't know. That's a good question. That's, a terrifying... that's why I'm always, I mean, and that's why I think we should all in some way feel like, I, let me make sure that I'm getting God right. You know what I'm saying? Make, yeah. make, make, let me make sure that I'm receiving this message properly in prayer and reading through the scripture. But you always, you don't want to get too comfortable, right? Mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. we have it all figured out. I mean, one of the things Jesus did very well was let people know you, you don't have it all figured out. Yeah. And there's a way to look at this that you're not looking at it. And I, I don't want that to be me to say, oh, I completely missed this. I know I can't get everything, yeah. but I do want to be faithful as, as much as possible. I, can, I feel like that drives you too. Like that's one of the things that mm-hmm. it feels like you like makes up a lot of your character of like going into these truths that are very uncomfortable to talk about, Mm -hmm. but like you still have to say them out loud. So at least you're covering some bases you do know about. Yeah. I would hate for it. Yeah. I would hate to know that I didn't say something that I was supposed to say. Yeah. 
um, because of my own self-interest. And that's really what it is. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's your own self-interest one way or another. I may lose friends. I may not get this job. Sure. I understand that there are certain things I'm probably precluding myself from in, you know, in, you know, urban America because of some of the things I'm saying. But, yeah. you know, they need to be said. If you could get into a time machine, go back in time, step out of that time machine and introduce yourself to yourself, what would you tell him? I would tell him to stay in the church and stay in, stay, stay in the Bible, uh, to see the flaws. Because we talked about earlier when I went to college, I kind of bought into this more modernist uh, theology mm-hmm. because it was very convenient for me. And I think I would tell him to because and I didn't necessarily believe truly believe it was right, but I just I just went along with it. And I think I would tell him to stay in the scripture and realize that your people did not sacrifice for you to come in here and completely throw away your, your beliefs mm. um, that just because I went to Vanderbilt university, just because these professors have written books and they, you know, they have all these awards and things does not mean that they know Jesus better than your grandfather knew. Him. Mm-hmm. And so for you to come in here and act like, because you're in this new atmosphere that they know so much and throw away everything that you have been taught yeah. about fidelity and about um, morality. Um, that's wrong. Yeah. Um, because those people, they might not have been as educated, but they knew God just as well, if not better. Right. And I think that's a mistake a lot of us go through when we come, you know, we come from a place where we learn the gospel from people who might not have been as educated. Mm-hmm. We get into these situations and we're like, oh, now I'm around these huge professors. They have all these mm-hmm. books. They're telling me that if I'm sophisticated, I'll believe this. Mm-hmm. And so you leave behind what you learned before. I think we have to understand, you know, the, the gospel isn't just for the elite. It's not yeah. just for academia. It can be understood and, and held tightly by those who may be even lesser educated. And maybe that's a conversation I'd have with my former self. Did your grandfather try to prepare you for that? Generally, but not specifically. I don't I don't think he understood the dynamic of academia and, the, and what I would go through. But generally, yeah, that you will have trials and your faith will be tested. And I didn't get that lesson until later on. So maybe I would have given myself that lesson early. You've been listening to The Calling. Justin Gibney is a political strategist and the co-founder of The Ann Campaign. You can find him on Twitter at Justin E. Gibney, G-I-B-O-N-E-Y. Don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes. It's still appreciated. It always helps. The Calling is produced by me and Morgan Lee. It's edited by Jonathan Clausen. Theme music by Lee Rosevere, used under Creative 4.0. 